of Talking Space. This is Gene McCulka, and I'm here with Ms. Cassie Tamanini. How you doing? Doing well tonight. Thank you. And fresh from Jerusalem, from the 66th International Astronautical Congress, Kat Robinson. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. I'm glad uh, to be back. Oh, that, that makes, I think that makes everybody here. Mark Ratterman and Sorry Rosenstein couldn't make it tonight, but they're here with us in spirit. So again, guys, hope you're uh, doing well out there. Well, Kat, you have a chock full of information for us today from IAC 2015. And you also gave a little bit of a talk when you were there, too. So why don't we first kick off with what you wanted to go ahead and talk to us about your presentation at IAC 2015 and what that was all about. And then we'll get into the nitty gritty of things. Sure. Thanks, Gene. So this year, like last year, I also presented a paper at IAC. One great thing about the International Astronautical Congress is it's not all, only a great opportunity for networking and to hear from the heads of agencies in all one space, which we will talk about later in this show, but it is, at its heart, an academic conference, so a lot of technical papers and sessions are presented. Um, so I presented a paper about the development of the STEM workforce. The title of my paper was STEM and the Humanities how the bifurcation of the discipline is harming the STEM workforce. And I looked at some recent research in regards to communication within STEM majors or within the science discipline, sorry, and then looked at how we are actually educating STEM majors. And one thing that I found when looking into this issue, because as we all know, I focus a lot on science communication for my own personal research, or I should say my academic research at school, and one thing that, that constantly comes up is that scientists have trouble communicating with the public the importance of their work and why the public should care about it. So I wanted to look at what's causing these disconnects. And one thing is, is that we do not educate STEM majors on how to communicate. Traditionally, people learn communication skills uh, in the academic setting, in the university setting, through your liberal arts and humanities courses or through what, what's considered your classic liberal education. And because of how specialized academic disciplines are today, the STEM majors, especially engineering uh, in particular, tend to miss out on getting anything but the most basic courses in the humanities or the liberal arts. Basically, they just get those gen ed classes that everyone has to take, right? That's about it for as far as liberal arts and humanities for engineers, right? Yes, that's correct. You're getting your typical two-course sequence of college English, so like an English 101, English 102, varies between universities and colleges on what that's called. And then perhaps some gen eds, which can be anything from an art class to another English class. Some social sciences are actually considered liberal arts and these measured and why that's a concern is because those communication skills that scientists need to be able to communicate the importance of their work and why people should care are skills that are typically taught in a liberal education. So these are skills that are taught in the more advanced liberal arts or humanities courses. However, the average STEM major is only getting anywhere from 11 to 17 credits, which translates in anywhere from just under four to just over six actual classes in these subjects. So my argument is, is that we want to change and affect our science communication problem, that we need to change the way that we are educating STEM majors. So, okay, I just want to make sure I'm understanding what you observed. Uh, you're seeing that you just basically get the, you know, basic English and 
and all that out of the way, and then that's pretty much it. Just just English composition one and two, and and pretty much that's the end of the story there. Would you? And and this is just me going out on the limb. So would, I just want to I, I want to just cut in here, and that these are I'm looking at studies done by other people. So this right. is not my observation. This is looking at studies done, and I believe this was done. This study was done by the National Academy of Arts and Sciences. And I will check that. And for my paper, I'll check the reference to make sure I'm correct. But so I'm looking at studies done by other people. This was a paper that took a pedagogical stance on an empirical question. Okay, then I stand corrected. What, in your estimation then, would it behoove an engineer, uh, somebody studying astronomy, say, or, or anything like that, would it behoove them to actually get into a uh, basic communication course and how to communicate ideas, how to take an idea of what they're looking at, what they're studying, and really, really learn how to translate that to paper or to, say, a presentation? Or would it be a good idea, too, to maybe give somebody a course in how to do a presentation or even better still, even a, a and this is really me going out on a limb. So uh, I'm just going to actually, let me, let me just stop you there. It's not so much that we need to teach a communication course to STEM majors. It's that by not taking or not providing a more whole and holistic education, mm -hmm. they're not learning the skills that are typically picked up in this. So maybe this problem could be addressed by teaching specific communication courses, but it's more that the skills that you learn in a, in more advanced global arts or humanities courses are the critical thinking skills and the communication skills and how to how to look at a problem from a lot of different angles and how to communicate not only with people who don't know anything about your subject but how to communicate and negotiate within in a team because there's not just a communication problem with scientists with the public there's also a communication problem within companies mm -hmm. With companies to customers, companies mm -hmm. to stakeholders. So it's just an all in out that there's a stereotype of like the nerdy scientists for a reason, you know? Scientists kind of and engineers, they work a lot individual, although a lot of them work in teams, a lot of the work is done on their own. And so when we're training this, there's not a lot of teamwork in the training for scientists or or STEM majors, at least not at the undergraduate level. As you get into more advanced degrees, there is more teamwork because you have to work with a committee. Uh, but even then, you know, they're not learning these kind of critical thinking, critical analysis skills that are taught when you have a holistic education. In fact, one thing that's really interesting is that students who come from selective liberal arts colleges, so you're talking about equivalent 80 who these are the country's best liberal arts colleges actually are accepted into graduate degree programs for STEM majors at a higher rate than any other undergraduate education. So even students coming from a more technical school are actually going on at lower rates into graduate programs than graduates coming from a background from a liberal arts college where they're learning more of these communication skills. So are you saying, so under that thinking, could it actually be an advantage as a STEM student? Let's say I was in high school thinking about going into a STEM career. Would, it, would that make it really worth considering taking the major I want, but at a more liberal arts focused college? Because I remember looking at colleges that were taught, bragging about how they make their, their science majors take a lot more liberal arts courses because they are a liberal arts school. Would that be an effective strategy if I was personally trying to make that decision, say? Yeah, that can definitely be one effective strategy. And there are schools now, you know, MIT being one of them, that are starting to offer dual majors in a humanities or liberal arts major and a science major, recognizing that the most prepared employees for the workforce are those who have this extra set of skills that are taught inherently within the liberal arts and humanities. I know too that just and I'm again this is this is me going out on a limb again. We're talking about I know there's a lot of lot of rote learning going on at the lower levels, the elementary and the secondary level. It, it just seems like we're teaching to the test rather than going ahead and trying to go ahead and make kids think. 
you think an, an adaptation to just saying, hey, just really, really teaching critical skills. Uh, thinking skills at a very young age, say the elementary and secondary level schools, would that also be a possible solution to the to the problem? Well, certainly, early education and you know primary and secondary education is part of this. One thing that the Common Core, which has gotten so much backlash from so many people, but one of the goals of the Common Core curriculum was actually to realign education with teaching students first how to think, not first how to memorize. So this is definitely a problem that that we could begin to address at the, the primary and secondary level and would probably be good both for the STEM workforce, but also for our nation in general. But the scope of my research was focused on on how we can fix this in the university education level. And again, one thing is, is like as we are, and we'll talk about this later, we are moving into, especially when you look at the space sciences and the STEM workforce, we're looking at teams that are going to need to be able to work in high pressure environments who are going to work with multicultural international teams and who are going to have to be able to defend the importance of their work, not only to stakeholders within the company, but to the public, to policymakers. And those are skills that are taught in the liberal arts education. You know, how to be able to be an analytical thinker and to communicate well, um, how to be able to frame issues in context, you know, whether they be in international context or historical context. And just how to be able to advocate for their work. And those sorts of skills are not taught today to our STEM majors in our current educational model. And we are starting to recognize this, and hopefully that recognition will lead to a change in the way we educate. But when it really comes down to it is unless the STEM employer, so unless the workforce demands graduates that have these skills, nothing will change. So as long as the workforce doesn't recognize the need for better science communicators in every aspect of their workforce, this will not change. And, and I think that that kind of comes to the heart of the issue because I think not every agency and not every company recognizes the need for communication on such a broad level. They're kind of content to hire people who can communicate for them, but don't really understand like how much better it would be if everyone in their company was actually trained to communicate. I mean, that doesn't alleviate the need for specialized communicators, but it certainly uh, makes the specialized communicator's job easier. You know, it's interesting you say that because I've been reading about how this, and actually the tech industry has been talking about this problem of communication within their companies. And so there are some that clearly are starting to look for this. They're starting to realize that this is a problem. Like you said, it's gotten so much more specialized in recent years that it's developing into a problem more and more. And so I've noticed in the tech press, actually, a lot of companies talking about how they're specifically looking for people who have these skills. Because people aren't like people are having trouble advancing if they don't have communication skills. They stay at that lower rung, say programmers, for example. So maybe, you know, maybe this is something that's going to start building more. And I think so. I mean, it really is a vital skill. And when you look at communication in general, especially when you look at communication with the public, you know what? The public makes decisions about scientific questions without using scientific information because the people who communicate best aren't scientists and don't care about scientists, you know, and that's just kind of an unfortunate truth. And I think it's one that we're all going to have to wake up to, as you point out, Cassie, you know, the tech industry is really starting to see like communication is a valuable part of a skill set, And we need to value that just as highly as we value the technical skills. And this is what keeps me employed at my day job. So <laughs> in plain English, because this is what I do for a living. But Kat, again, if if somebody is looking for your paper, is, is it available out there? And if so, can we go ahead and throw a link into the show notes if people are interested in reading what you did? It is not yet available. I haven't posted it. Um, it okay. will be posted eventually. So once I do, I'll make sure 
the Talking Space readers have access to that, but it's not yet posted anywhere publicly. Okay. Um, but it will be. So once it is, I will I will make sure that it is available for anyone who would want to read it. Because I'm I'm most eager to go ahead and read it myself, because I'm wondering how this could be applied to what I do uh, during my day job. So again, this is again communication is a critical skill. Doesn't matter where you are on the uh, if you're, you're a scientist up in, in in a laboratory or just simply somebody that's writing claims all day, you still have to communicate. You still have to have to share ideas, and this is indeed a critical skill and should be taught. So. And again, thanks for uh, for enlightening us a, a little bit. I'm most eager to dig in on your paper once uh, once it's publicly available. Thanks. I Thank you. It. So the whole purpose, Kat, for uh, IAC 2015, the, each one of these sessions has a theme. And this year's theme over in Jerusalem is what? <laughs> this year's theme is highlighted why we need better communicators. So the theme for this year was space, the gateway for mankind's future uh which when you're when you're reading that and sitting in the audience as a woman it's kind of like oh well that's great what what about my future and one has to wonder you know as we're coming out of a conversation about communication was there not a communicator in that local organizing committee who determined the theme to think like hey you know what english is is a gendered language and since it's a gendered language we should be choosing non-gendered terms it actually became a talking point at the Congress uh, because once again, for two years in a row, at least the two years I've been going, the only woman on stage during the opening ceremony who had anything to speak was a performer that was the MC and the only representative of, of the Congress who came on stage but who wasn't able to speak was they had again Tanya Mason Zwan, who is the president of the International Space Law Institute. So she came on stage to open the Congress, but was not speaking. So you kind of, you know, this gets highlighted uh, during the heads of agencies group. You know, there's a lot of use of the phrase of manned and unmanned and, and a shining beacon of wonderful 21st century language, Charlie Bolden, who NASA has had in their style guide since 2006, um, non-gendered language use for, for using terms such as crude or uncrude. And other terms, you know, using humanity versus mankind uh, has been in their style guide since 2006. So it was very refreshing to hear that. And, and there were people who commented on this. So when, when you're giving a paper about science communication and the need to educate people about these sorts of issues and historical context, it comes right to the forefront. So this Congress was very much focused on the future. And part of that conversation about the future was how to get a more diverse workforce, how to involve more women in space and space sciences. And it was definitely a, a very salient conversation considering the theme of the Congress. Indeed, we're going to get into that diversity question a little later in the program. Speaking of things in the future, when we left IAC 2014 in Toronto, the future of the International Space Station was being discussed, and I still remember, unfortunately, Kat, when, when you went out over there last time, we, we didn't get a chance to talk about it here on the air, but uh, Charlie Bolden was in between both the head of ESA and JAXA and was talking about re-upping with the International Space Station. Now, we did decide to go ahead and push ISS through 2024, was there a general feeling that ESA and JAXA were going to go ahead and sign up, re-up with ISS in 2016? Or what was the feel there? Because they kind of pushed that decision off until late 2016, if I recall. And now I'm wondering, what's the vibe as far as them possibly re-upping with the International Space Station? Well, as far as the space station now, and, and you know, there's operating agreements with NASA until 2024, I believe. I think that there's commitment to the space station throughout that time frame. No one explicitly said, you know, from ESA or JAXA that we're going to re-up, but everyone seemed to be on the page that, you know, for as long as the space station is the international space partnership, that's what we'll be working on. But the real focus of this Congress was what comes next. What comes after the space station? 
what's happening now and in, in the International Space Station itself is almost like old news. That's what's been happening. That's that's what's already happening. And all of the agencies that were sitting on the stage during the heads of agencies presentation made it very clear that, you know, low Earth orbit, Leo is yesterday's news. We're about moving forward. We're about moving into the future. And the International Space Station is not the future anymore because it is in low Earth orbit. And a lot of agencies seem very content, and rightly so in my opinion, to leave Leo to the commercial space industry. Not saying that that research shouldn't be done there, not saying that we abandon Leo for scientific endeavors and scientific purposes, but that agencies should be focused on the next big step, not what we've been doing for a few decades now. One of the things Bill Gerstenmaier has always said that is what's next after the International Space Station is NASA has plans for another. And he's always said that, well, he doesn't see NASA getting back into the space station business. He would like to see a commercial venture, say, using the Bigelow modules and so on for a company to actually start their own laboratory up there for lease where other firms or even universities can go ahead and lease time on board this Earth orbiting platform and that NASA should just get out of that business. So that's really, really consistent with what uh, what's been said in the past. There was no conversation about NASA and another space station at all. NASA, as far as any of their official representatives at ISA went, there was no conversation about another space station. Their line, and they all kept the company line, is NASA's next goal is Mars. Which kind of leads us right into uh, where we were going next. So what was the conversation with reference to Mars and the path there? I know while you were... Well, I, yeah, I would say I don't, I don't know that we're quite ready to jump to Mars yet because there was a lot of conversation about what goes on between Mars. Right, um, that, that's what I was ESA, getting at. Yeah, ESA's Director General, uh, Jan Warner, was really very excited and, and really had a lot to say and was very vocal, um, not only during the Heads of Agencies presentation, but throughout the entire conference. There were a lot of opportunities to hear him speak. And he is firmly behind... and firmly advocating the idea that the successor to the International Space Station should be a moon village. And by that, he means a permanent, continuously inhabited space on the moon that would be internationally built, internationally staffed, and would be a place both for scientific research and for commercial development. So, you know, we're not talking about a village where there's a, you know, local grocery store and a church and a (laughs) village square, but really looking at like a permanent space station, but a permanent moon station on the moon. And he really came back to that idea a lot during the Congress and is very seriously advocating for a moon village. In fact, when he threw this up here and talked about it, he uh, put it up on the screen and it was hashtag moon village. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it r- reminds me t- talking about like a scientific community doing research and things. It kind of reminds me of I've been thinking about this all week of Antarctica, how it's basically everybody who spends time there is mostly there doing research. And it's but it is kind of like a community has sprung up out of these research stations. This moon village concept kind of reminds me of that. It really does. It really feels like you know, let's have a, a scientific outpost and a research outpost on, on the moon, but also wants to open it up for commercial development, you know, whether that's mining, in-situ resource development. Like, he really wants this uh, moon village to be both an international partnership, but also a partnership between the public and private sector. It seems like it could almost be like like the ISS was like a proof of concept for a microgravity lab. The Moon Village could be a similar kind of thing where it starts off, it's agencies, international partners, governments doing this, and slowly over time shifts to commercial. I have one word in this whole thing, constellation. That's exactly what constellation was supposed to be. It was going to go ahead and kind of set up its own sort of permanent McMurdo-style effort on the lunar surface as a research station not only for, as some of you have already pointing out, for commercial and all that, 
but also to try to figure out what on the moon can go ahead and help us get to Mars and try to build a stepping stones from the moon to Mars. And I didn't, a lot of people said, well, the moon is your father's space program. And I'm not, you know, even, even uh, uh, President Obama has actually said that. I tended to disagree. I thought that the moon was a great stepping stone to Mars. And it seems like that that line of thinking, I'm most curious to find out. I know this is what East is thinking. I know the Russians were thinking the same thing, although I, I think their plans are a little bit too grandiose. But so, um, so uh, but I'm I, wondering what NASA's thinking. Um, so I will I will address a couple of things there. First of all, back to you, Kathy. I actually think, based on what Issa was saying, is that they're looking for this to be commercial and public straight from the start. They're looking at like how oh can yeah, we work no, together. I get that. But also, you know, to address what you're saying, Gene, NASA intends to use cislunar space not landing on the moon, but intends to use cislunar space as part of their journey to Mars. Right. But one thing that was interesting is that Gerson Meyer actually directly addressed questions of constellation, the cancellation of constellation at IAC, and saying that one of the big reasons for the cancellation, according to Gerson Meyer, was a problem with vibration in the rocket, and that it would just have been too expensive to fix, and so something had to be done. And basically, from what he was saying, he went into a somewhat detailed explanation of the vibration issue with the Ares rocket and blamed the entire cancellation of Constellation pretty much on that. So it's kind of interesting that he did directly address that. What's interesting about kind of the next steps and, and you know, whether it's a moon village and Mars or a moon village or Mars or, or what's going on is that so many of the agencies are already committed to working together on this. You know, ESA is providing the service module for Orion, and they plan to take that service module to cislunar space. So I think even if NASA decides that it is no longer in the business or it's not going to land on the moon as a proving ground, NASA is still going to be involved in the next step of getting to the moon. Because, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in the show where we can talk about it now, um, you know, they've recently released their Journey to Mars, their um, right. PDF plan about. And part of that has to do with Earth-dependent uh, missions and, you know, moving from Earth-dependent to Earth-independent. And one of their steps from moving from Earth-dependent to Earth-independent is to go to cislunar space and right. to be able to function in cislunar space. So with or without a landing, NASA is going back to the moon. And I actually watched a presentation in a space policy technical session where someone talked about and looked at some of the different pathways to kind of get to Mars and are we going to land on the moon? Are we going to go to cislunar space? Are we just going to go directly to Mars? And through their research, she concluded that, you know, the smartest thing for the next step in our journey outside of LEO is to go to cislunar space. Mm -hmm. So we're all going to the moon. Uh, Jan Warner, you know, that's his thing. He wants to go to the moon. He wants to go to the moon village. It's something that he said so many times throughout the Congress that it's just stuck in my head. He's like, you know, if anyone has a better idea, let's do that. But until then, this is a good idea, and this is what we're going to do. So he is, he is very much very much behind the idea that the successor to the International Space Station is an outpost on the moon. And I personally think that it's a fantastic next step to follow the International Space Station. You're preaching to the choir here. I've said that several times. In fact, there was, while you were away, Kat, I'm looking at an article right now from MIT News, and I think maybe you might have already seen this, to say, wait, a detour to the moon is the best route to Mars. And this is exactly what we're talking about here. Again, using stuff that's already out there rather than bringing it with you. And these are the things we still need to explore. One of the components of the Proving Ground was the um, asteroid redirect mission. And I'm wondering if that's still on the table right now, if, if that's something NASA's yeah, pursuing full guns or, or what, how, how, how was that talked about at all? So it was, it was talked about, um, both Gerson Meyer and Bolden mentioned the asteroid redirect mission and mentioned it as part of the cislunar space step. So they want to, you know, get an asteroid and they want to bring it into cislunar space and they want to have astronauts visit it. So 
the asteroid redirect mission is still very much on NASA's radar and something they are still discussing as part of, of as part of the journey to get to Mars. Right. The other thing too is as part of the the proving ground concept here is if I'm looking at the report is a quote an initial deep space habitation facility for long duration systems and testing. So I'm guessing we're talking about a sort of quasi ISS somewhere within cislunar space or at a Lagrange point someplace. Am I interpreting that correctly? Did anybody kind of mention that during the conference at all? Not really. What was really mentioned in, in regards to deep space habitation was uh, talking about what's important to consider when, when heading to Mars. And, and there was a lot of talk about the health of the astronauts, and that's a huge concern when you're looking at deep space uh, missions. One of the things that I thought was, was sort of a feature of this, because I remember at NEEF, there was some discussion about that. Yeah, so at IAC, they really didn't discuss that part at all. There was some discussion of the concern for the health of the astronauts for deep space missions. But when they talked about kind of the step to Mars, it was really cislunar space as, as kind of a place to test, you know, service modules, and then from cislunar space to Mars. So, yes, that's in the report, but no, it wasn't really discussed much as a separate part of the Congress. Okay, because from what I gathered, there was a lot of discussion about getting to Mars and how to, what would be the proper roadmap to do it. Could you enlighten me a little bit as far as what the buzz was about Mars at IAC? Funny <laughs> you should ask. <laughs> Buzz Aldrin was was at this IAC and was uh, quite the character during the during Absolutely. the week of events. Even showed up in scuba gear on the last day of the event. Wow. <laughs> so there was a lot of discussion about the best way to get to Mars. And I was able to ask both Buzz Aldrin and Charlie Bolden what they thought the single largest challenge facing uh, the trip to Mars. And I think it was really interesting because when I asked Buzz Aldrin this, his response was the return trip. We need to stop focusing on the return trip. So it almost sounded like in some ways he was advocating for a Mars One type adventure to Mars because he really feels that why waste billions of dollars or why invest billions of dollars into the trip to Mars if you're just going to come back. When he said this later in the week, I had a chance to uh, attend the press conference with Charlie Bolden. And so my question with him was, what do you see as the single largest challenge to Mars? When I asked Buzz Aldrin this question, he said it was the focus on the return trip. And we have a clip of Charlie Bolden's answer. It's a crystal ball, but I can tell you what the, the experts tell us. We are looking at uh, the most critical challenges to putting humans on Mars, and that includes, because we're not, we're not talking about one-way trip, so, so I will stipulate that Buzz is correct about coming home, but that's what we intend to do, so that's, that's a given. Uh, three things. One, in-space propulsion. Uh, we have got to get faster transportation to get to Mars, and we're working with that, many of the partners with academia and industry. Second is radiation protection for the crew. We are comfortable that crews will not be killed in transit and return to Mars, but our focus is on quality of life upon return. And so we need to be able to protect our crews better, and everybody, I think, is working on that. And the third one, and the one that, that right now is probably the hardest, is what we call entry, descent, and landing. That is, how do you put 20, 30 metric tons on the surface of Mars without having it being a thousand pieces uh, when the you know when the crew gets there three years later or however many years later. So those are the three technological and human uh, physiology challenges that I know of. So for me, the biggest problem is the question of the health of the astronauts. Meaning, you see, Apollo 13, they had a problem, a technical problem after two days or something like that but they could uh, return within one week, fine. Now, just, just assume you have after, let's say one month, you have uh, some terrible thickness, some terrible disease or whatever. Today, it would take you at least one and a half or two years to come back. 
So this is for some diseases, it's too long. So therefore what Charlie said, to have a much better propulsion so we are faster because you cannot just turn and say, okay, I go back. So this is for me personally the biggest challenge for Mars and I don't see uh, easy solution for that in the near future. So all the others are of course right, but this one, the health problem is for me the, the very special issue. So that last voice that you heard there was the ESA Director General Jan Warner again saying the health of the astronauts is the primary concern for both ESA and NASA when we think about the journey to Mars. And when Charlie Bolden was talking about the EDL phase, in my head, I was just thinking of MSL's seven minutes of terror. <laughs> and can you imagine the seven minutes of terror with a human trip to Mars? Oh, yeah, but you know darn well that that's what they're trying to figure out, and that's what we're trying to fix and try to figure out how the heck we're going to go ahead and do that. Uh, yeah, because we've we've landed a car-sized rover on Mars, but we're going to have to land a lot larger amount of infrastructure on the surface of Mars safely if we want to have humans go there. Exactly, and that's that's a problem that we're still still looking into right now. Uh, one of the things that just struck me, by the way, Buzz has always been on this one-way trip thing. If I recall, even at the 2012 International Space Development Conference when I was there, he was also kind of advocating that one-way trip concept. So I'm not really all that surprised that he would kind of gravitate toward that. Uh, I'm also curious, too, because I know we had, uh, when the astronauts came back from, say, the moon, we had a, a quarantine protocol and, and all of that. I'm wondering how, if there was any, any discussion about dealing with that problem. Say, instead of coming immediately down, they would just simply dock with an orbiting quarantine area there and just make sure things were okay before returning home. Not, nothing that I attended did we discuss that, but again, I would assume your, your normal, at least for landing on Mars, there's probably going to be some pretty strict planetary protection guidelines there because we don't want to contaminate uh too much of mars with our microbes you know we can exactly. we can clean rovers a lot easier than we can clean human beings right i mean i mean the human being is one of the most dirtiest things in the known universe it's kind of a challenge to try to deal with us uh, as an organism trying to contaminate mars uh, we'd be bringing entire colonies with us each individual human yeah pretty much <laughs> And I know that we've got pretty demanding protocols against contamination for our own spacecraft yeah. going to Mars. Just around everyone hoping that we find life on Mars. If we do find life on Mars, there's going to be huge implications for a crewed trip to Mars. Yes. Agreed. I mean, I don't even want to even think about the contamination protocols on something like that. Okay, so let's keep our fingers crossed for a life on another body in the solar system. I never thought I'd be rooting to not find life somewhere in space, but yep. <laughs> I know too that there was some that that some of the commercial space folks made a bit of a splash at IAC twenty fifteen. I know the folks over at SpaceX came out with their announcement that they were going to try for a a launch window, and Cassie, you and I discussed that on the last program, where they were trying to go ahead and shoot for a launch window somewhere between late November and mid-December of this year, which I thought was kind of interesting since the uh, return to flight for the Cygnus launch was also occurring around the December 3rd time frame. Was, what other commercial efforts were making news at IAC? I know that there had to be a lot of talk and a lot of information coming from the commercial space realm. There is, and, and there always is, because it's just as much for the commercial industry as, as the public sector. But for me, what was the most interesting thing that I saw was the announcement of a launch of a new company. Well, new to us, it's been around for a little bit, but it's called Blue Star. And they are proposing and are in the development and testing phase of a small satellite launcher that would actually launch the stages of the rocket from a balloon. So they would attach a balloon to their staged rocket that would include the payload, go to a height of about 20,000 kilometers, and then launch from there to orbit. 
it's really cool. We will definitely include a link to, to their website in our show notes. And again, they're called Blue Star. And they are currently looking at testing their first orbital flight. I believe it's 2018 that they're on track for testing. And they haven't released its private information how much their current cost of development is. But they're on track to offer this launching service to small payloads at only $4 million a launch, which is incredibly cheap compared to any other wow. option for a small satellite out there. It's really fantastic and really exciting. And I, I was a little skeptical because I'm... <laughs> I'm a skeptical person and they were, they really advertised this press conference that they gave during IAC a lot. But when I went and listened to them talk, I was incredibly impressed and, and they're pretty far along in their R&D process. And I just have to mention the coolest part of this besides launching from a balloon is that their launch pad is a boat. So they can literally <laughs> take their launch complex anywhere in order to get to the proper orbit or the proper orientation, uh, you know, where you're looking for your satellite to go. So, I mean, it, it gives a whole new meaning to I'm on a boat. Really? It removes so many barriers. I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing. The geographic barriers, the cost barriers. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. And I noticed they said on their site, you pick the day. It's not waiting for something that has other payloads. It's your, your, your project. You pick the day. You control the timeline. I mean, I'm sure there's obviously got to be some weather concerns and stuff. But, but still, that's, it, it, again, removing barriers. This company seems to be all about removing barriers. And that's amazing. Yeah, did they, did they say, it really what, is. Did they say how heavy the payload has had to be? There, has, there still has to be a... I think, a, I think it's... I cannot, and I'll have to look back at, I did not write this down, but it was that asked, and it's probably on, on their website, um, so something look, that we could. I'll take a look at it, Kat, and if anybody's interested, it's spelled B-L-O-O-S-T-A-R.com. I'm looking at at least the first graphic that they have on their website, and this blows me away. We got to talk to these guys. And this is this is just absolutely fascinating. I might have to reach out to them and get them on here just to talk about the concept. And I mean, this was really, really out of the box thinking. And uh, we are definitely going to be putting this up on the show notes. It's the first time that I'm seeing this, and it's the first time yeah, I'm, it's really I've never heard. I'm looking on their I'm looking on their website now, and they said a hundred kilograms on the website. But I think during the presentation they said 150 kilograms. So I'm not sure if if um, that's if that's changed or if 100 kilograms is correct. But uh, also, they have a larger volume than most uh, payloads because of the way that the shape of their rocket is or their stages, that the satellite volume can be up to uh, 2.4 meters cubed, which is kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a better shape than, um, you know, most payload fairings are cylindrical, and this one is more of a dome. Mm -hmm. And it's really exciting, and I'm really looking forward to what this company will be doing next. Just to make sure that it's a, you're talking about 150 kilograms somewhere around there. I believe it's on their website. It says 100 kilograms, but I believe during the the presentation that they said 150, but their website says 100 kilograms. But it's a small satellite. Yeah, it's roughly about, yeah, it's roughly about 220 pounds. So it's we're talking a small sat. We're not talking something like a large communication satellite. But for if you have a have a modest sized satellite that you want to launch inexpensively, this is the way to go. This is yeah. definitely an option. One of one of the other I was just yeah. They did say I'm looking back because I tweeted during this. I'm looking back, and they did say 150 kilogram payload during the press conference. So perhaps that's the most up-to-date information that they have. Yeah, this this is fascinating. And I'm, I'm definitely going to have to do some homework on these guys. Because, again, while you were gone, NASA also went ahead and signed uh, an agreement with three other companies, Virgin Galactic included, with Launcher One. And um, I believe it was, Cassie, help me out here. I know Firefly with, with the Alpha, and I believe it was Rocket Lab with their Electron Booster. These were strictly for CubeSats, and I was wondering if there was any talk about uh, the future of CubeSats there at all, if anybody. There was, a, there was a lot of conversation about CubeSats, and there was even an interesting presentation from uh, a guy at JPL talking about planetary 
CubeSat. So using oh, wow. CubeSats for planetary exploration. That's and yeah, really exciting. And speaking of cooperation and signing agreements, another thing that happened at IAC is that NASA signed a cooperation agreement with the Israeli Space Agency. And we actually were one of the very few Western media outlets that were there. It was us and a reporter from NPR. Oh, really? Score one for our side. <laughs> yeah. And Bolden gave a small statement during it, and we do we do have some audio of that. But before we go to the audio, I just want to mention that one thing the Israeli Space Agency does focus on are these small sats. So definitely... NASA and many other agencies are considering how small sats and how nanosats and cubesats are going to play in the future of space exploration and also the need for space traffic control, because there's a lot more satellites up there now than there have ever been before. Well, Kat, just to wrap things up a little bit, you had a very interesting conversation with Sunny Williams, who is part of the commercial crew program. She was uh, announced that she was going to fly on one of the commercial crew missions. And part of the conversation was not only her participation in that effort, but also you guys touched on something that we touched on earlier in the program, the diversity reach that NASA's trying to reach. And so if you want to go ahead and speak up to that, by all means. This was probably my favorite interview that I have ever done with anyone. And I kind of regret that I didn't record our entire conversation because when we sat down and to talk, because I actually had to wait for about an hour and a half to speak to her. She ended up going to talk to a few space camps and I just hung with her. And, and you know, Israeli children do not get a lot of opportunity to see astronauts. So I was content to wait. I had some time on my schedule. So when we finally sat down, the first thing she did was ask me what I studied. <laughs> And which led to a, a long conversation about science and science communication. And, and as soon as I told her that's what I studied, she goes, oh, do you listen to Science Friday? How can we make more people listen to that? <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm always happy to talk Science Friday because it's one of my favorite, favorite shows on NPR. So we had a really fantastic conversation. But the interview that we have here for Talking Space, you know, I asked her a little bit about commercial crew and specifically how she was selected for commercial crew. And then just... To wrap it up, she was asked a lot of questions during the Congress, and she, there were several public events that she was part of, about what it's like to be a woman in space or if there's anything different. And one thing that she said that really stuck with me was, you know, the spacesuit and the spacecraft doesn't know your gender. It doesn't know if you're a boy or girl, man or woman. It's just a spacesuit and it's just a spacecraft. So it's really important that that there are a lot of different people, not only men and women to work in space, but also people from different cultures and different backgrounds because everyone faces problems differently. Like I said, this was a really fantastic conversation. So we've got this interview here for you where she talks about commercial crew and then just wraps it up with a, a really great thought on diversity. So I'm here with Sunny Williams, who is a NASA astronaut who was recently selected to be one of the first four astronauts of the commercial crew program. Sunny, will you tell me a little bit about your selection process? Did you apply to be commercial crew? <laughs> That's a, it's a mystery to all of us, honestly. Um, no, seriously, uh, you know, the commercial crew program is uh, two new, brand new spacecraft from our commercial partners, Boeing and SpaceX. Uh, we, we gave them some requirements and uh, made some of that pretty vague so they could uh, put in as much technology that they could and, um, and however they wanted to solve the problem. So uh, at some point in time, though, it has to be solving the problem such, a, uh, such that it can be applicable to the user, right? And so the four of us who were selected are the four sample users. Um, and we're all test pilots, so that brings with it a little bit of uh, a background experience uh, about how to evaluate aircraft is, is what all of us did in our past lives. And then also all four of us are experienced space flyers. We've flown on either the shuttle or the Soyuz, done spacewalks, or not done spacewalks, been in the front seat of the, of the shuttle, been in the left seat of the Soyuz. So we all have an idea about how spacecraft in the past have worked and probably 
what we liked and what we didn't like. Um, and so that was sort of, I guess, I guess the criteria. It wasn't really expressed throughout the astronaut office. It was just we were sort of mandated that, hey, you guys, if you want to do this, this is we'd like you to be part of this program at this juncture. Um, it doesn't mean other people aren't going to be in the testing of these vehicles mm -hmm. as well because these only the first two. And as we all know, every single spacecraft is fairly unique for a while until uh, things get a little bit settled out. So, you know, I, I envision that um, we'll be doing the very first uh, checkout of the automated systems for launch, uh, rendezvous, docking, and then undocking and reentry. Whatever part of that is also manual, we'll probably try to give that a ring out, but that's also a secondary um, purpose for these vehicles. The primary purpose is automated. Uh, the, the secondary purpose is manual, just in case we have any problems. So some of that stuff might get implemented in later vehicles, but at least, uh, at least we'll provide the initial, with the companies, the initial criteria to evaluate these spacecraft in those modes. That's very interesting. And personally to you, Sunny, why is commercial crew important? Yeah, so this is really important to me. Um, you know, I've launched on both a shuttle and I've launched on a Soyuz. So I've had family and friends, uh, drag, dragged along family and friends to both the <laughs> shuttle launch and, uh, and the Soyuz launch in, in Baikonur uh, in uh, Kazakhstan. And uh, having this commercial crew capability will bring a launch back to the United States, which I think it's important for our country uh, to stimulate the science, technology, engineering, and math uh, the STEM uh, sciences, uh, STEM background for the younger next generation of explorers. Of course, it's they can read about it, they can see it, and public uh, social media has been wonderful to help uh, share the experience as we're launching halfway across the world. But when you can bring it into your own backyard mm -hmm. and people feel very uh, in touch with what's going on, uh, they could come to Florida to watch the launch, uh, they could see people pretty cl closely after they land and uh, how they are doing and what space flight is. Uh, they can relate to the people who are going. They can put themselves in your shoes. You can put them, yourself in their shoes. I, I think that will add a lot to you know, our country um, advancing in, in, in the STEM fields, and I'm, I'm hoping that will happen. Now, I'll, I will say I hope it happens uh, also all over the world, not just in the United States. And these vehicles, uh, the, the capability we have requested is that we have another seat inside, so we'll have uh, four seats rather than three on the Soyuz, which provides, mm -hmm. of course, more opportunities for our international partners to fly in space. So I'm looking forward to sharing this uh, advancement of STEM uh, worldwide. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier this morning, we're here at IAC, uh, that you enjoyed working in a diverse crew and an international crew. Can you just talk a little bit maybe about the importance of diversity in space? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think I've never been on a crew that was just generic and, and people uh, laugh and always ask me, what's it like to have a crew with no women? I'm like, I don't know, because I've always been on the crew, <laughs> right, that I've been on. So it's sort of funny. And I, I mentioned earlier to a bunch of young students here and girls, uh, so verse diversity insofar as men and women. Everybody looks at a problem a little bit differently, uh, be it men, women, different ethnicities, different uh, nations, different religions, whatever you are, uh, everyone solves the problem a little bit different. And it's nice to see how other people solve the problems. They might have looked at something that you never looked at and never uh, would have considered, but it, it, it's very important to actually solving that problem. So I, uh, I think it's uh, pretty arrogant to think that, uh, you know, I know everything. I think I'm very very happy to have other people come in and give their contribution and I think that's the, the benefit of diversity is you, you get a lot of different opinions and you can really shake it all out and weigh which is important, which is not important mm -hmm. and make a better product and I think that's what uh, diversity brings. I think that's what the International Space Station has brought. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I love the International Space Station. I've lived there for almost a year of my life but it is a little bit of a kludge which is great because that allows us to compare and contrast mm -hmm. um, how people solve problems from different countries and different engineering philosophies. So I love diversity. I think it helps us. That's great. And just to leave it here, obviously when you walk around here wearing the very iconic blue NASA flight suit, you get mobbed and lots of people want to talk to you and lots of people want to take your picture. If you could just leave 
one statement that you think is very important for you know the current generation, the next generation to hear? What would that be? What to you is most important? Oh, it's it's funny that you mentioned the blue flight suit because I was joking around and said, hey, who else wants to put it on? And I think <laughs> I think that's probably what I'd like to, to like to leave. Anybody can wear the blue flight suit. Anybody could be an astronaut if you put your mind to it and you think that that's what you want to do. Anybody can work in the space field. It's exciting. It's fun. It's uh, it's it's the it's the exploration in our hearts. And I, I challenge anybody out there, particularly the next generation, to get involved because you know it's a peaceful adventure where we're all looking to do something better for our planet and people on this planet. And uh, I've said it before: when we leave low Earth orbit, we ought to leave as humans, not people from another first from a certain country. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Sonia. I really appreciate it. I don't know if there is anything more that I could add to Sonny's words, but, you know, when we leave low Earth orbit, we should do it as humanity and not as citizens of separate countries. You know, that's always the thing that strikes me that astronauts say when they're in orbit and they talk about, you know, you don't see the boundaries, you don't see the borders. They're not mapped out. They're, it's not like looking at a map. There's no way to tell. We've even had some fun with them when they mess up their geography <laughs> because you can't see those lines from space. And it should be the same way with the endeavor to go to space and to really? go further. Yeah. And it just, and it was just, such a, a poignant thought considering where we were and how contested that area of the world is. Um, it was just really a great reminder that, you know, these borders don't matter because we're all humans and, and we are working on this endeavor in order to make the world a better place. And I don't remember exactly who said it in what session, but someone said that we really go to space in order to make Earth a better place. I can't think of anything else better to, except one other other thing that uh, Sunny said. She said, anybody can wear the blue suit. So if there are kids listening to this, keep that in mind. Keep going, keep plugging, keep learning, keep preparing yourself. And you too can be part of this grand adventure. So keep that in mind. Yeah, and I think that that's especially like, it's not just about the astronauts, but the astronauts have teams of thousands of people who support them so everyone can get involved anyone who wants to be part of the space sciences community can be you know as stephanie sheerholz said once to uh, an accountant at a tweet up you know nasa needs accountants too that's very true i've heard her say that <laughs> and so it is something where there's even been people who came from that community who have applied for jobs at NASA that they didn't know existed. So it really does take a huge support team of all kinds of people. Indeed. Kat, thanks so much for coming on and, and sharing the experiences with IAC. Wow. And thank you for going to Jerusalem for us. <laughs> <laughs> it's my pleasure. I'm just glad that we got to talk about it before all of my classes here back at home push everything I learned out of my head. <laughs> but, uh, it, it's IAC is a is a fantastic experience, and I, I was really happy and very proud to be able to represent Talking Space there. And we're we were absolutely proud uh, that you were able to go ahead and do that, and and I couldn't think of a better representative. So. On behalf of the whole team here, thanks so much. My pleasure. And with that, I am going to go ahead and wrap this show up. Kat Robinson, thank you again for attending IAC on our behalf, and uh, thank you for sharing the experiences. Wow, what a ride! Yeah, it really was, and and thanks for thanks for sending me, and I'm really looking forward already to IAC 2016 in Guadalajara. <laughs> I, I, I might I might get brave and 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 join you on this one, uh, Cassie Tamanini. Thank you again for for sharing your insight with all of this. This this it was a fun evening. Oh, it was great. I was kind of Cat's mission control back in the states through the whole thing, and and it was so exciting to follow her progress. And last year I went with her. Next year I'm going with her again. This year I was sidelined a little, but because she shares it so much, it felt 
you know, almost like being there, but without having to worry about my safety. So it was kind of <laughs> well, nice. I could, I could not have done it without you. And I, and I, I should say that not only did she provide talking space mission support, but Cassie is, was my sounding board and my editor and, and it helps with both editing my paper and also with putting my presentation together. So um, Pat I could... lets me play at being an academic <laughs> sometimes. So, uh, and, and, and Cassie is the one who does, who will do all the hard work. And trust me, this episode will be very difficult. <laughs> hard work to sound engineer and make us all sound fantastic. So, um, you know, she deserves just as much appreciation. She was not only my mission control, but my rock while I was in Jerusalem. So thank you, Cassie. Oh, thanks, Kat. Oh, bravo. <laughs> Oh, I'm off for glimpse. <laughs> <laughs> and anybody that can make me sound good, please, deserves a, you know, the, an Academy Award, <laughs> trust me. So on, on that uh, and happy note, for Kat Robison, Cassie Tamanini, Mark Ratterman, and Sawyer Rosenstein, I'm Gene McCulka. Thanks for listening to Talking Space. <laughs>